Welcome to Digging Deeper in Grace, a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Our goal each episode is to dig deeper into the scriptures with a focus on our most recent sermon. And now let's dig deeper. Well, hello, welcome, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm your host, Bart Sheridan. With me for the first time in the new year is Tim Cockrell, and Tim initiated our study of 1 Peter with a focus on chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, and that passage will be the focus of our conversation for the coming minutes. So I know I'm a week late, but happy new year to you, Tim, and uh, grateful to, to have you here with us again today. Thanks, Bart. And you, by the way, you had a little vacation we did. Uh, time away to, as I recall, Princeton, but not the Princeton that comes to my mind. You are right. So, so we differentiate between vacations and family trips. Uh, this was a family trip, which was also really sweet. We got to see some people from our previous church. We got to see Katie's family up in New England. Not much snow, but I didn't mind that on the long drive there and back. But it was a sweet time to be away. Good to be back, and uh, great to be back with you. Big, uh, that begs the question. What is the definition of the Cockrell family between, or the difference between a family vacation and a family trip? So a family trip is usually more focused on activity and adventure, and uh, vacation is a time where you really can just kind of rest and unplug. That begs the question, what kind of adventure? Oh, so anything (laughs) from, you know, a cross-country road trip to hiking, those types of things, you know, things where you're... You're busy doing things that are out of your normal rhythm, but that sometimes leave you a little more tired when you get back (laughs) than you were when you left. I do understand. Okay. Well, let's jump back on script. Hey, it's good to to hear that and glad you had a great time. Tim, uh, we're in 1 Peter 1 through 5, or chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, as I said. Adam Hammett was with us last week. He was discussing his sermon, the very last day of uh, Mm -hmm. last year from Psalm 88. And he didn't mention at that time that this study of 1 Peter had anything to do with his selection of that particular text for his message, but it was in many ways a great lead-in to what you shared this past week and what we'll be looking at here over the coming months. It really was, and and I think think that Adam did a great job just bringing out realities we all struggle with at different levels and in different ways. But when we see this in the Advent season, we saw this when we were looking at Habakkuk and Hosea, Um, we see this all throughout Scripture, even our study of Philippians last spring, that there's just this heaviness to living this life. And that doesn't mean it doesn't have hope, but that we need to be able to acknowledge that heaviness. We don't want to just gloss over or minimize or trivialize it because the reality is on any given Sunday, we have people that are gathering whose hearts are heavy, whose minds are burdened, and whose lives are just pressed in on every side. And I think it's really important for us to remind ourselves that the Bible isn't just good news for those who have it all together. In fact, it's the very best news for all of us who recognize that we don't have it all together. And so I do think that Adam's message was a great um, anticipation and preparation for this series that we've begun. Well, and as we said last week, that uh, common exchange on a Sunday morning or any morning of, hi, how are you? I'm fine, often isn't emblematic of all the truth. Right. Of what good things that are going on. Yep. Well, I know I mentioned to my adult Bible fellowship as we were uh, going through this this study this past week that the the English Standard Version it presents this this idea that Peter shares in verse one. He talks about uh, uh, the elect exiles, 
and I don't know if I've got anything here, but it, it just it provoked in my mind a thought that, number one, it's a little different, just the wording uh, order is a little different than in some of the other popular translations. Uh, the idea of elect exiles, in, in fact, it, it focuses my mind on, I think, the truth that, first of all, God does choose his own, but is there a sense also that Peter is saying here that God is electing his people to suffer? I do think there's a connection there. And, you know, I mentioned on Sunday, I think these two words are so central and pivotal to the book. Because if we understand what it means to be elect, we understand the necessity that we are also exiles. That the second is the implication of the first. That once God has chosen us out of darkness and into light, out of death and into life, that we are now living in such a decidedly countercultural way that we are going to necessarily experience opposition. That because we are citizens of an upside-down kingdom that is opposed by the world because they hate the king, we shouldn't be surprised when they hate, mistreat, and malign us. We're even going to see this next week as we look at verses 6 through 12 that, that Peter says that it's necessary mm. for you to suffer for a little while. That suffering isn't just optional. It certainly isn't a punishment uh, in most cases for for you know, not being good enough or, or working hard enough, but that rather it's the natural outflow of living out our new identity as those who are chosen of God. Whether we're talking about uh, the creation itself, whether we're talking about our lives, when we say God elect, God chooses is another way of saying mm-hmm. that. This is not then saying that God has elected and then Tim and Bart are sort of wind-up dolls that perpetually wound and that God just sets us off. That's not what I'm saying. The, the election, I think what you're indicating, the, elect, the election continues on and God continues to be active, I should say, in our lives and uh, is not just saying, hey, okay, now do your thing. I've got you. Right. No, for sure. It is not something where he simply just uh, does an initial act and then you know steps back in a distant or disconnected way. I think the election that we see is clearly God's initiative that because we are dead in our sins, because we are helpless and hopeless apart from him, we need him to make the first move. We cannot do it apart from that. And I had several conversations after church on Sunday with people asking questions about, wait, so how does God's sovereignty fit in with human responsibility? And I said, well, if you figure that out, go ahead and write a book because people have been wrestling with that for years. But I think one of the things that somebody I was talking with after church Sunday mentioned that I was like, oh, that's so good, is that almost every time that the Bible specifically talks about God's election, it's reassurance for the believer. It's that when we are beleaguered and frustrated, when we are opposed and persecuted, that we recognize that our salvation isn't something that depends on our initial initiative or our ongoing ability, but from beginning to end, it's a work of God. And so that fact that God is sustaining us as well as saving us is a great comfort for us as believers. Especially those of us who might be hot messes at any given time. Amen. God's got it all under control. Tim, in in verses 1 and 2, we're presented with the three persons and the roles of those three Mm -hmm. persons, the members of the Trinity. And then in verse 3, Peter breaks out in praise. He, He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy and so on and so mm-hmm. forth. You mentioned in this context that our response to theology should be doxology. 
Now, first, I'm thinking that some in our congregation, and I had to think back, what exactly is the definition of doxology? We sing the doxology, mm-hmm. but what's the definition of doxology? And, and second, talk a little bit more about this concept and where we might see this practiced in Scripture. Maybe even a third comment, my question might be, how might Tim Cockrell do this? How might this in anybody, given person's life? Right. Yeah. So let's start off with kind of definition. Uh, I'm no Greek scholar, but, you know, logos simply means word. And so theology, uh, theos is God, you know, is, is the study of God, the words uh, about God that we understand. Doxology, doxos being praise, are words of praise in response to God. And I think one of the things that we're trying to highlight here is that we don't just want our minds to be filled. We want our hearts to be moved. We saw this all throughout the Sermon on the Mount, that it all comes back to the heart. The gospel starts with the heart. And and so if we simply know right information or try to to do behavior modification, we're going to fall short of what God actually wants. He wants a heart that is transformed and devoted through faith to him. And so you you ask kind of where else do we see this? We see this all throughout Paul's letters. Uh, I mean, you think about even Romans chapter 7 where he's like, Oh, what a wretched man I am. The very things that I don't want to do, I do. And the things that I, I want to do, I'm not doing. Who will deliver me from this body of sin and death? And then he just bursts out and prays, thanks be to God that through Jesus Christ, there is power and there is victory over these things. And, and we see this all throughout his, his different letters. I'm not remembering a, a number of passages right off the top of my head, but he, but it's as if he is is building momentum and suddenly he just bursts out in praise because for him, it's not simply a logical or, or a intellectual exercise, but that as he is rehearsing these truths, he is captured afresh with wonder and amazement by them, such that he is devoting himself in, in love and gratitude to God. And so as I think about how that applies then to me, uh, I recognize that in, in terms of the spectrum from logical to emotional, uh, I'm definitely more on the logical side of things. I'm someone who, who likes to, to think through things and, and generally don't have real high highs or real low lows. But I think there are many times where the danger is that we take for granted certain truths that we've heard over and over again. And so for me, many times, it just simply is a matter of stopping to pause and reflect on wait, do I really understand and grasp the gravity of what I've just read or even what I've just taught? You know, sometimes as I'm communicating to others, <laughs> I fail to really feel the weight of it myself. And so God in his grace and through his spirit often just kind of catches me and, and uh, awakens me to the danger of going through the motions and, and just fills my heart with gratitude in, in that sense. Maybe not to where I'm, I'm bursting out in, in loud praise, but certainly where I have a heart that is moved by these truths. I'll keep my eye open for that. You do that. Well, and don't we also see that? I mean, I've got to think, you would agree, David is a master at this. Uh, There's a lot of truth, a lot of doctrine in in the Psalms. I mean, we get some messianic uh, Psalms and so Mm -hmm. forth, but there, and then David's often breaking out in praise, even in some of his lowest moments, breaking out in praise to the Lord. Absolutely. I think that's one of the key themes of many of the lament Psalms that we see is as deep and as dark of pit as he often finds himself, it almost always, there are a couple exceptions, but almost always ends with him declaring his praise and his trust in God. 
and for those of uh, who might, uh, I don't want to say degrade or denigrate, but who would uh, want to say, hey, we don't need to spend so much time on doctrine. Let's love God. We hear that in our society, don't we, a lot. But wouldn't you say that this is just more evidence that those who are were closest to Jesus, they see the, the real connection between doctrine and worship. Yes. They're interlinked. Well, and I think one of the, the mistakes many people make is they think, well, I don't need to be a theologian. The reality is every one of us are theologians. The question is, are we a good one or a bad one? Because if we are, are rightly understanding the truth of God, then our heart will be moved by those truths. Good. Thank you. Tim, you referenced at least twice, I counted, uh, mm-hmm. on Sunday, the phrase fixing our eyes on, fixing your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, or some form of that. I don't, I'm not well aware, I didn't hear you reference the passage of Scripture where that phrase appears. So talk to us a little about the context of that particular phrase and what its relevance is to our study of First Peter. Absolutely, yeah. So I was I'm, listening. Good, I can tell. I mean, <laughs> this is great. Yeah, we draw that from Hebrews chapter 12, which of course comes after Hebrews 11, which is popularly known as kind of the, the great hall of faith, where we recount the people who have lived faithfully and obediently to the Lord, even at a great cost to themselves. And so then the author of Hebrews begins chapter 12 by saying, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race that has been marked out for us and let us uh, set aside anything that would hinder and the sin that so easily entangles and, and, and let us run the race that God has marked out. And then it says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, who is the author and the perfecter of our faith who for the joy uh, of set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of the Father. And so he recognizes that these people who have suffered are now witnesses of our lives, and that we are called to take the baton, if you will, and continue to run, but we are doing so as we follow in the footsteps of Jesus. But the great comfort that's there is that Jesus is both the author and the perfecter of our faith. And, and that's really what I was trying to draw out on Sunday, is that from the beginning to the end, our salvation is a work of God. And so even as we endure suffering, which is all, a lot of what Peter is going to be talking about here in this book, we recognize that we are following in the footsteps of Christ. And that the normal pattern of the Christian life is that the cross will always come before the crown. And that should reassure and remind us that what we're experiencing is not some anomaly, but rather is by God's design. And I, let me read verse 3. We stop there at verse 2 particularly, but in chapter 12 of Hebrews, but verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners, sounds like persecution by the way, mm-hmm. uh, against himself so that you won't grow weary and give up. Huh, sounds familiar. First Peter 1. Well, you said also in one of your concluding points that <clears throat> God is the believer's security, guarding us from apostasy. Mm-hmm. Now, how does our scriptural understanding of a God who not only chooses, elects the redeemed, but also secures the redeemed for all time fit into the character of God? And how should that give the Christian, you and me, new hope that you mentioned? Yeah, I think as we think about the character of God, we recognize his great wisdom and his great love. He knows that if our eternal destiny depended upon our grip on him, Every one of us would be in a precarious position because we are, we're prone to wander. We know that. We feel that in our own lives. And so not only do we require his initial work in our lives to open our blind eyes, to soften our hard heart, 
but we require his ongoing work in our life to guard us and to guide us. He does that through the Holy Spirit that he has provided for us. And so when it talks then in verse 5 about him him guarding the believers through the faith that is yet to be revealed, he's certainly not talking about being guarded from suffering. He's made it clear that that is going to be our experience. But he's saying that he who began that good work in you, he's going to be faithful to complete it. So in those moments where you feel abandoned or forgotten, where you feel weak or weary, you lift your eyes from the pressure and pain of the present to the hope that it is a God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And that that brings strength, that brings hope, and that brings endurance through those trials. And so I I think the wisdom as well as the grace of God are, are just so clear in that verse particularly. You're on the team of one who can get it done. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Peter here is certainly talking to an original audience composed of people who are going through uh, an awful lot. I, as, uh, as, I, as I've tried to pinpoint the dates, I, I think you would probably agree somewhere around 62 to 64 mm-hmm. AD. Um, <clears throat> Peter is in. Do we know why Peter was in Rome, by the way? We know why P- Paul was there. He was had prison epistles out of Rome, but... Peter, we don't know, do we? Or do we? We don't. I mean, I don't. It's maybe <laughs> we know what's that, going to happen. Correct. We think we know. <laughs> correct. And, and certainly for Peter as an early leader in the church, we even see in some of Paul's missionary journeys that he intersects with Peter at, at a few different points along the way. Uh, but it may very well be that he he was doing his faithful ministry, and that's where the Lord led him to. And that ultimately that resulted in, in his death just about a year after the writing of this book. Wait for eternity to uh, to figure this out. Yep. But, uh, okay, so we're, we're dealing a lot with, with tremendous trials of persecution, all that can come from that type of treatment of a believer. But I'm also reading, as I'm, as I'm trying to think through this, I'm reading not only in chapter 1 but throughout the letter a message of preparation. For the believer and calling the believer to be prepared, not only for what you're going through, but you know, it might get worse <laughs> and it might continue. Can you comment on that? Yes, I, I agree. I think when we look at the way Peter describes suffering here in first Peter, we don't see a lot of indication of that they're they're physically endangered or, or being imprisoned or some of the, the awful things that we see in some of the persecution that comes even just a few years later. And so I think what we see are kind of the initial waves of what will eventually become a tsunami of suffering that these believers would experience. And so I think what Peter's trying to do, and this is what any good parent is going to do, is try to take in the small examples, in the everyday experiences, the principles so that they are prepared then for the more extreme examples. And so he's going to talk about, here's how you ought to be relating to your government. Here's how you ought to be responding to your employer. Here's how you ought to be related to your wife or to your husband because he recognizes they're already facing the pressures that come along with being someone who is part of a different kingdom. And so he's trying to help them to begin to respond in faithful ways to the marginalization and and to the opposition that they're experiencing so that when that time comes, that the more serious and severe persecution comes, They've already been strengthened and prepared for it. And it would come. I, as a, I'll call myself an amateur historian. Mm-hmm. I, I love history. Um, we know some things that were going on. And that, can you ex- 
expound a little bit more on what's going on in that culture? What What is Peter seeing in 62 to 64 AD? And what's going to be coming down the pike here within within two years or so yep. uh, that's pretty significant in Rome? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I, I won't bore you with all the details in part because I don't know all the details. But uh, uh, You certainly, won't bore me. I love it. Certainly when... When you have the Christians in the Roman society, initially people associated them with the Jews because they were were from that same basic Jewish background. Well, you can imagine the Jews didn't really want anything to do with that because the Jews had special protections under Roman law where the Jews would not be compelled to say Caesar is Lord, for instance. And so the Jews and the Christians were having such conflict that actually around 4950 AD, the Jews were actually expelled from Rome because it was such a, a tumultuous situation. And so I don't know, it's, it's speculation, but it may very well be that some of the Gentiles that Peter is writing to actually were dispersed as exiles because of some of that tension and opposition. And so at minimum, they were these Christians were being viewed with suspicion. They were being more and more marginalized in society. Nero is now re- ruling in Rome, and he's not yet uh, murderously uh, attacking the believers, but we're already seeing some of those happen. And then, of course, you have the, the great fire in Rome in which Nero blames the Christians, and then you, you see an initial wave of persecution. Even then, another 10 or 20 years later, you see even more severe persecution happen in the Roman Empire. And so we don't know what that looked like for the people in these particular regions, but I think because Peter is in Rome, he's at the epicenter, if you will, so he's already beginning to see these things. And so he's writing to the people that are on the frontiers saying, prepare yourself because I can see what's coming. And when we talk about preparedness, we're talking about discipline. We're talking about being, you know, obviously being ready. But uh, discipline, we talk about that quite a bit, really, throughout the scripture. So important to be disciplining ourselves so we're ready when those things do come. We know they're coming. Absolutely. Tim, uh, we're starting a study of First Peter uh, I believe we're going to move from there into Second Peter, not to get too far ahead of mm-hmm. ourselves, but can you tell us, a, 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 just a, for those who are interested, a quick idea of schedule, and then also what we might be expecting here the next couple, three months, or, may, or three weeks, and maybe even uh, this week, coming week, what, uh, what we might be wanting to be focusing on as we're preparing to hear what you have to say. Sure, absolutely. So in 2024, kind of basic sermon calendar, we're going to be covering the book of First Peter until after Easter, so right up kind of the beginning of May. Uh, then we're going to do a four-week series specifically on forgiveness. We're going to look at what the Bible has to say about God's forgiveness of us and therefore what that means for our forgiveness of others. I find that this is a topic that there's a lot of misunderstanding about, maybe because of worldly paradigms, and certainly there's a lot of deep emotion and some real raw Uh, wounds, and and the gospel speaks to those things. And so we want to bring those things to the surface. Then we're going to study the book of 2 Peter through the summer, which will be a a great kind of complement to what we've already uh, studied in 1 Peter. And then we're going to look at the book of Joshua in the fall, which I think is going to be a really uh, sweet study and and, uh, really helpful. Over these next couple of weeks, uh, Peter really is going to focus on on suffering, you know, what it means to live out our identity. And specifically this coming week, he's talking about what purpose does suffering, specifically suffering as a believer, not just general or generic suffering, what does that serve in our life? Why would God allow that if he is good and if he is loving? And I think the more we can tether ourselves to those truths, the better equipped we'll be to live out our identity as ambassadors in a world that is hostile to Christ. So if you want to 
talk suffering, we're the place to come. Hey, Very good. man, talk about marketing tool. <laughs> Great. Well, it's something, as you said, comes to everybody, and let's, mm-hmm. let's talk it and dress it head on. Tim, thanks for your time. Thanks for your preparation. We really appreciate the work you're doing. Absolutely. We've been digging deeper today with Tim Cockrell, and we invite you to share your questions and comments with us each week. You can email those to contact at gracecedarville.org. And plan to join us next time. We'll be continuing our study of God's Word in the book of 1 Peter, chapter 1. And until we meet again, I'm your host, Bart Sheridan, thanking you for tuning into this episode of Digging Deeper in Grace. Digging Deeper in Grace is a ministry of Grace Baptist Church in Cedarville, Ohio. Visit us online at gracecedarville.org and join us next time as we continue our discussion. In the meantime, we invite you to continue digging deeper in grace as you read God's Word.